And as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Uh, So, we are continuing our little short mini-series on how the gospel makes us generous. Um, And as Luke uh, mentioned last week, if you you weren't able to be here, if you didn't hear that, we're not doing this because the church is in a financial bind. We're not doing this because we are after your money. We are covering this because um, the Bible speaks about this subject. God cares about it. Jesus cares about it. And so we, as the uh, pastors and elders uh, of this church, who are God has ordained to care for you and disciple you, uh, we want to make sure that you are cared for and discipled and shepherded through that. And so we're going through this um, short uh, two-sermon series, uh, which we will conclude this morning. So, with that said, almost everyone knows at least one line from Charles Dickens' novel, Oliver Twist. Oliver is an orphan boy who grows up in an orphanage in 19th century England, and most orphanages at that time were just awful, horrible places. Children were forced to work without pay. They were given meager rations of food. They were minimally clothed. They were also mistreated and abused. Um, Dickens was very explicit in his description of these places. But the most famous line from this book comes near the beginning when the nine-year-old Oliver is elected by his fellow orphans to ask for more food so they won't starve. And so at the next meal, he walks back up to the line and he says, Please, sir, I want some more. And when it comes to money and to wealth, it's really easy for us to slip into thinking about ourselves a lot like little Oliver. We're poor, starving, needing just a little bit more so that we can survive or be happy. But is that really an accurate picture of us? Or is there perhaps another one that we might resemble a little bit better? There's another similar line to Oliver's in another book, and it's delivered by a very different kind of character. In Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, Veruca Salt is the spoiled, obnoxious daughter of a wealthy family. And so she gets a golden ticket, she goes to see the chocolate factory, and there she sees the goose that lays the golden eggs. And not satisfied with everything that she already has, she says, I want the goose too. She demands, I want the world, I want the whole world, I want it now. So given that the country we live in is the wealthiest, most comfortable, most well-fed, well-clothed, and well-housed society in the history of humanity, when you and I examine ourselves honestly, can we really honestly say that we are anything like Oliver Twist? Or can we, really, can we all just admit the fact that far more often we're a lot more like Veruca Salt? We have so much, and yet we demand more. Our needs are all met, but we still think that we don't have enough. We need just a little more. And this is exactly what Paul means when he tells us not to set our hopes on riches. But riches and wealth dominate our culture. They dominate the world that we live in. So much of our time and our energy is devoted to making more money so that we can get more things and have bigger houses with better security systems so that we can protect and hold on to our things. 
Our hope is that having more just will make us happy. And so just like Veruca, our culture is addicted. We are addicted to getting and having more. But reality is no matter how much we get, it will never, ever be enough. That's why riches are uncertain. And the Bible calls us to live differently. God challenges us in in his word to think more about what we can give rather than what we can get. So this morning we're going to look at what drives that particular kind of lifestyle. How can we be motivated to live generous lives that are more about giving than about getting? And so from our text this morning we're going to see that the uncertainty of riches and also God's rich provision for us lead us to live generously. Again, our main idea is that God, the uncertainty of riches as well as God's rich provision for us lead us to live generously. So first of all, let's examine what Paul means by the uncertainty of riches. So the Bible, as we said, has a lot to say on this topic, and Luke covered some of what Jesus taught on it um, last week, but there's also more. We could go to the Old Testament. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 10 and 11 says this, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? So Paul is echoing here the preacher of Ecclesiastes as well as the teaching of Jesus. And he's reminding us that riches are fleeting, that they're here today and that they're gone tomorrow. And that they're not satisfying. We might think that they'll fulfill us and bring us some happiness, but this is really just a temporary, fleeting, momentary feeling. Even though we think money uh, will fix all the problems that we have right now, in reality, once we have more money, we'll just have more problems that need even more money to fix. And then it's all gone again. So Paul uh, is reminding us that, but he also has a certain type of person in mind here when he says that we should not set our hope on the uncertainty of riches. Throughout this letter to Timothy, he's advising him on how to handle this situation that he had false teachers that were coming in and infiltrating Timothy's church. And a few verses before our text, Paul wrote him wrote this, verses 3 through 10. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. So false teachers, what Paul is saying here is that the false teachers had set their hope on riches. These were haughty, arrogant people who wanted to make money off of the church. They thought that godliness would bring them financial gain, but their desire for wealth, in fact, was destroying them because it was leading them away from Jesus and it was leading them toward judgment and destruction. So pursuing wealth may seem to be a good idea. It might be what makes sense in our culture But loving money, Paul said, reminds us, is the root of all kinds of evil. And it inevitably will lead to ruin. Frank Capra most likely had this passage in mind when he made his uh, classic film, You Can't Take It With You. 
In the film, The Poor but Well-Beloved Patriarch, Martin Vanderhoff says this to the wealthy and arrogant industrialist Anthony P. Kirby. You're an idiot, Mr. Kirby. What makes you think you're such a superior human being? Your money? If you do, you're a dull-witted fool and a poor one at that, poorer than any of these people you call scum, because I'll guarantee at least they've got some friends. But you'll wind up your miserable existence without anything you'll call friend. You may be a high mogul to yourself, Mr. Kirby, but to me, you're a failure. Failure as a man, failure as a human being, even a failure as a father. When your time comes, I doubt if a single tear will be shed over you. The world will probably cry, good riddance. That's a nice prospect, Mr. Kirby. I hope you'll enjoy it. I hope you'll get some comfort out of all this coin that you've been sweating over then. Now, that is a little bit strongly stated, I'll admit. But it sums up what actually happens. And this is what Paul is teaching will happen when we are haughty and arrogant and our hope is set on the uncertainty of riches. We come to our end miserable and alone with no friends and no loved ones to grieve over us. Just a big pile of useless stuff that we can't take with us and that those we leave behind are going to fight over. And this is not what God wants for us. God provides us with so much, and he wants us to enjoy his rich provision for us. And that's the second point I want for us to consider, that God provides everything richly for our enjoyment. And I realize that that might sound like it contradicts what we just heard, what we just saw, but if you look again at the text, you need to realize the problem isn't the riches. God is actually the one who's bestowing the riches. And the Greek in this verse is clear that God provides us everything richly, lavishly, generously. And the purpose of that is that we would enjoy it. Well, maybe it's hard for you to see God in that way. Maybe you've always seen God as keeping all the good stuff to himself. Not letting you have what you need. But in fact, the opposite is true. God provides us because, for us because he wants us to enjoy his gifts. He doesn't want us to set our hopes on the gifts, but he wants us to set our hopes on him, on the giver. And we can, with full confidence, set our hope on him because he is unparalleled in giving gifts. He is unparalleled. He is infinite in his ability to give us good gifts. And I want us to just give you a few examples to illustrate this point. Um, we all know about the uh, unique, uh, beautiful design of each individual snowflake. You heard about that? That each one is, if you look at it closely under a microscope, they each have a very unique, very intricate, very beautiful design. But have you stopped to consider how many of those God makes? Author, Christian author N.D. Wilson says this, Snow is so overused. One sentimental, overly structured ice flake might have some value, but God never seems capable of moderation or of understanding the basic concept behind supply and demand. He constantly devalues his own products. Give me one flake, a cool room and a magnifying glass, and I'll admire its artistry, but right now I'm sitting by my window on a Christmas night staring out at winter wastefulness in the extreme. Miles of clouds, clouds larger than states, have turned into crystal stars. 
and now streak silently past my window to their deaths. You see, God does not do anything in moderation. He is over the top. He is lavish. He is liberal in all that he does. He is never conservative or stingy with us in anything that he gives us. And think about all the other ways in which God is lavish and he's excessive in his creation. After all, why did God make so many stars and galaxies? We don't even know how many they are. Why are they there? And why does he make rain come down in trillions of tiny little droplets that he makes form way up high in the sky and have to plummet thousands of feet down to the earth? And why does he make up our bodies out of trillions of tiny little cells of hundreds of different kinds and varieties, each of them made up of dozens of different small components that each of them are made up of these subatomic components as well, and all these have to be working together seamlessly and flawlessly just for us to stay alive? Why does God do that? And why does God make himself have to sustain all of these things and more on a day-to-day basis everywhere in the whole universe? Why does God do that? Because he's lavish. He is infinite in his ability to give good gifts and to be generous. And he's infinite in his ability to manage and administer all those gifts down to the minutest detail. And he's lavish and over the top because he wants us to see how great and awesome he is. He loves giving us all these things because he wants us to enjoy them. And another way that we can enjoy his gifts is by having feasts. Feasting or sharing big meals is a very common way that we like to both share as well as receive generosity. And the Bible is actually full of stories about feasts. We just went through a series with Luke about this, about how Jesus was frequently using feasts and big meals to bring people into fellowship with himself. This is why Jesus was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. We also see in the Old Testament that God commanded regular feasts and festivals to be kept to commemorate great events that he had done for his people. For us today, Thanksgiving is a feast that we can celebrate this week and we can enjoy it wholeheartedly because God wants us to enjoy his generosity for us. He's lavish. He is lavish in all that he has provided for us. He expects us to receive those gifts, to enjoy them, and to give thanks. So it is good, it is right, and it is proper for us to do that. And I would also mention, when we come back, uh, we usually have communion every week. We won't be doing that today, but when we come back again next week, that is a feast. It is a feast when we receive communion, and Jesus, at this feast, offers us himself to feast upon. No host at any meal in the history of the world has ever given their guests so much or been so generous. Christmas time is also coming up on us quickly, another time for feasting and celebrating. And it is also a time for generosity. After all, giving and receiving gifts at Christmas is one of our culture's most cherished traditions. And we do this because at Christmas we remember the greatest gift that has ever been given. God in his generosity gave us his son Jesus. But why? Why did God send us his son? It was so that we could kill him. So that we could reject him, torture, humiliate him, and crucify him. This is the reason why Jesus himself said that he came. 
He came to die for us. He came to suffer the punishment that we deserve because of our sins. And God sent us Jesus because God is the opposite of Santa Claus. He doesn't give presents to all the good girls and boys. Any miser can give gifts to people who deserve them. The Bible tells us, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You don't deserve God's generosity, and neither do I. God owes us nothing. But he give us, he's given us everything. He's given us his own son. And so this Christmas, remember how generous God has been to you. Remember that God sent the greatest present to us, to the very people who murdered his son. But Jesus also rose again, and Jesus is alive. And this morning, he offers himself to you. Still, that is the generosity of our Savior. We crucified him And he rose again, and he offers himself to us. Will you receive him and accept his generosity? Feasting doesn't just happen on holidays, though. It's also very common at weddings. I love weddings. I really like a good wedding. They're so much fun. It's hard for me to think of a happier, more joyful occasion than a really good wedding. Which is why I'm super excited that we get to go to the greatest wedding. The best wedding, in fact, the greatest celebration of all time, the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible describes Jesus' second coming as a great wedding feast. From Revelation 19 and 21, we read this, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready, and it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Do you understand what the Bible means when it calls the church the bride of Christ? It means that we are the focal object of Jesus' love. And we are the chief beneficiaries and recipients of his generosity. Jesus loves his bride. He gave himself for her. And he can't wait to bring her home to the place he's prepared for her where they will be together for all eternity in perfect bliss. And the Father who loves the Son... And he loves the church with all his heart. He pulls out all the stops. He's going to throw the greatest, most lavish, most joyful, most perfect wedding celebration that there could ever be. And he also gives us an extravagant gift that defies all imagination. God says, behold, I am making all things new. God gives the son and his bride a whole new world. A world that is restored, a world renewed and perfected, and all that made this fallen world so dark and so hard and so sad will be gone. And for all eternity, we will only enjoy God's lavish 
infinite generosity. And these are just a few things that we can consider to understand a little bit about God's generosity. But now we need to consider what effect should this have on us? How should it change us? How ought we to be different because we've experienced these gifts? Well, the next thing that Paul tells us in our text is that we should live generously. And that's the third point that we're going to see this morning. Uh, In verse 18, there's four phrases that Paul uses. Three of these are fairly clear, easy to understand. So he says, do good deeds, be generous, and share. Pretty clear. But I want us uh, to unpack the second phrase that Paul uses in this verse. What does he mean when he says that we ought to be rich in good works? What does that mean? Well, first of all, we need to notice that Paul uses the word rich four times in verses 17 and 18. He address, first, he addresses those who are rich. He warns them of the deceitfulness of riches. He reminds us of how God richly provides. And then lastly, he tells us to be rich in good works. So Paul starts speaking about wealth as just this material object. It's just, it's just the, 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 the wealth itself. It's a material object, and he shows us that this can sometimes be a negative thing, depending on how you use it or how you see it. But then he flips this meaning around, and he, he uses the word rich to describe the extravagant way in which God is providing for us. And finally, he follows up with this call to action, to go be rich. So for those of you uh, grammar nerds out there, he starts with a noun, and then he moves to an adjective, and finally he concludes with a verb. So for those of you who are interested in that. Um, and so when Paul is telling us then to be rich in good works, the implication then is that our perspective on wealth has changed. It's been transformed. We don't see riches simply in terms of material finances or objects or things. We've come to see that being rich is a way of life. It's a way of living. It describes the manner in which God acts when he's providing everything for us, for us to enjoy. And that includes all these little things that we take for granted. Things like gravity. Things like the sun rising and setting every day. And even our very next breath and heartbeat. God richly provides these things for us. And now we are called to act in that same way. To act richly as God acts richly. We act richly toward others. So the first challenge then for us that I want you to think about is, have you experienced God's generosity? Have you seen how richly God acts, how richly and generously he provides? Have your eyes been opened to see all that he does? And if you have, the second part is, how are we going to join with God in what he is doing? How are we going to use those riches? How are we going to become a channel of his generosity to the world? How are we going to use the resources that he has given us in order to do his work that he's doing? Paul implies here that those who set their hope on riches simply do all they can to get more and hold on to it. But those who hope in God who richly provides for us will use every resource that he has put at our disposal to be a part of the work he's doing. So being rich in good works goes far beyond finances and philanthropy. It definitely includes those things. It includes them, but it also has to do with how we use our time and our energy. 
Are we willing to give God the best of our time? Are we willing to be lavish toward others with our time? Are we willing to give God of our energy by serving Him and serving His people even when we are tired? It also has to do with where we bestow our affections, our emotional riches, if you will. Where do we invest the greater portion of our emotional resources? What are the things that we love and get excited about most? Are we lavish and generous with those, or do we like to keep them to ourselves? Also, since God has been so generous in his grace toward us, we are also called to be generous in showing grace to others, especially to those who we don't think deserve it. After all, that is what grace by definition means. So are we generous in being willing to show grace and to forgive those who have hurt us? And all of this and more comes out of our experience of God's generosity. So if you've not yet seen how much God has given to you, if you've not yet understood God's many blessings and his provision for you, and most importantly, if you've not yet come to Jesus and believed that he gave himself for you, that I invite you this morning to come and join the party. Come. Revel in the, extra, in the extravagant generosity and riches that our God provides us. Come and receive all that our Creator and Savior freely offers to you. And if you have trusted in Jesus, I invite you as well to come. Come again, taste and see that the Lord is good and that he has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness, that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and that he has, in fact, made many of us rich. And now he calls us to join him in his generosity, to join him in his giving. He calls us to be his instruments, channeling and funneling his blessings and his provisions to wherever they need to go. Because there are actually so many around us who have never tasted or seen his goodness. There are many who have never had even the opportunity to hear about God's generosity. And this is another reason that we ought to be generous because we want others to see God's generosity through us. We want others to have a taste, to have a glimpse of God's generosity and his extravagance when they see us and how we live. So the way that Christians, that we economize our finances, the way we economize our time and our energy and all our other resources should reflect God's extravagant and generous and lavish economy. So, that's all well and good. Great idea, great in theory, but in principle, where do I begin? Give me something practical. Well, I'll repeat what Luke said last week. Start by tithing. The tithe is one-tenth, 10% of your wealth, which is set apart for God. And the tithe was explicitly commanded in the Old Testament. And Jesus' teaching on money presumes that it remained in effect. The book of Acts, as well as the New Testament epistles, don't command the tithe, but neither do they deny it or abrogate it. And if they change it at all, they only build upon it. They add to it. And so the tithe remains entry-level. It is the ground floor, if you will, the starting point for how God's people ought to manage and use their wealth. So if you feel like 10% is not feasible for you, then I would encourage you to pray about it, 
talk to Luke, talk to our elders or to one of our deacons. And I'd encourage you to venture out in faith and try it anyway. And you will find, like countless others have, that God will continue to provide for you. But if the tithe is where we start, what comes after that? What, what, what about for those who Paul was addressing here, for the rich? Well, I want to suggest that you consider following the example of John Wesley and many others who have, uh, to whom God has entrusted great wealth have followed this example. John Wesley was one of the great evangelists of the Great Awakening that happened in American England in the 1700s. And when he was still young and relatively obscure preacher, he was poor. But as he traveled and as he preached, as he wrote, he rose in popularity. He also began to make a good deal of money, mostly from the sale of his tracts and sermons. But instead of keeping this money for himself and living more extravagantly, he decided to set a modest annual salary while he was still poor, and he resolved to never, the rest of his life, raise his salary. And so from then on, anything he made that exceeded that annual salary, he gave away. And it is estimated, for example, that at least in one year, he earned about $160,000, but only kept about $20,000 to himself. So my advice then, if you are capable of giving more than 10%, is to set an amount that you need, plan it out, figure out how much it is, how much you need to live, to tithe, to pay your bills, and also to enjoy your life. Like Luke said last week, we're not calling people to asceticism or to be living on just bread and water. But you can also set aside whatever you need to save, whether that's for a rainy day fund or kids' college or a family trip or for whatever you want to leave behind as a legacy to your children. But once you've determined those amounts, whatever is left, give it away and never raise those amounts. Don't raise those amounts for as many more years as God allows you to live and continue to give the rest away. Now, I'm not saying these things. I'm not telling you to do that. I'm not telling you tithe because I'm after your money. Like we said, our church is doing fine. We're not coming after you. We're laying these things out because this is what the Bible calls us to do. This is how it calls us to live. And so Luke and the elders and I are all concerned that we just, we want to be like Christ. We want to follow his example. We want to grow in godliness. We want to be discipled. And our finances and how we handle that is a major part of that. So that's why we talk about this. And it may seem scary to you, but I want you to remember the alternative that we already saw. Remember what happens when we set our hope on the uncertainty of riches. Remember that addiction to getting and having wealth is no way to have a good life. That is not a good life. It's only going to lead you to misery and isolation and destruction. And in the end, all of it's going to be lost. But Jesus is offering us something better. He invites us to store up for ourselves treasure in heaven, as we saw last week. And Paul again is explicitly referencing Jesus' words again here in verse 19. And he adds that this treasure we store up is a foundation for our future and that that foundation allows us to take hold of the true life, not the empty and fleeting life that this world offers us, but the true life which is only found in Jesus. Our true life is the life that we can only glimpse now, but it will be fully revealed in us when Jesus returns and we go to live with him forever. Jesus promises us 
in this true life. He guarantees us that every good work, every act of generosity, everything that we have given away is a deposit. It is not a loss. It is storing up for ourselves a treasure that we will have in our true life forever. And God promises us that in our true life, He will outdo. He will outdo every single act of generosity that we have done in His name in this life. And He will lavishly give more than we could ever feel like we have lost in this life. God's generosity is so boundless and infinite and extravagant. Let's enjoy His rich provision and let's also join Him in His giving Let's pray.